You know, the theme of forgiveness runs all through Jesus' time here on earth. The forgiveness of how we relate to God, how God forgives us, and how that informs our relationships with each other. You know, all the Jesus stories that we read in the Bible fall into one of two categories. There are eyewitness accounts written by someone who saw and heard everything firsthand and recorded it for us. Guys like Matthew and Luke and Peter and John and Mark, they wrote down the things that they saw and heard Jesus do and say about the miracles, about raising people from the dead, about healings. And there's those firsthand stories. And then there's a second group of stories called parables. Now, parables are made-up stories that Jesus told. They didn't really happen. They're fictitious events by fictitious people doing fictitious things in fictitious places. But what's interesting is what most people remember about the Bible are Jesus' parables. The Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the sower of the seeds, and there, there are dozens of others. See, Jesus was a master storyteller. He was a master communicator. And he used parables to communicate one big idea. He built the parable around one big idea. Most preachers like to take a parable and turn it into four points in a poem but Jesus used a parable to communicate one big central idea. And in this one big central idea, he communicated how God views the world and how God views people. And today we're going to look at two of Jesus' parables. Now, if you're new to Jesus or new to the church or don't know much about the Bible, you're still probably familiar with the first parable. But so that we can appreciate it more and understand it better, I'm going to give you a little context for the parable before we look at it. Jewish society in the first century was a very patriarchal society, meaning that there was great respect and great honor for men, particularly fathers and particularly, of course, older men. And we really don't appreciate that in our 21st century America. I think probably the closest that I've come to that personally was when I go on a global adventure to West Africa. Boy, when you're in West Africa and you're sitting around in a group of people and the old, an older man walks up, everybody gets up and gives him the best seat. When it, come time, when it comes time to eat, nobody starts eating until the oldest man in the group starts eating. And certainly nobody picks out a piece of meat until the oldest one there chooses his meet first. Come to think of it, I'm usually the oldest guy in that group, and maybe, maybe, that, maybe that's why I like going to West Africa. I hadn't really thought about that. But, uh, you know, today we're going to look at, at these parables, and so that's the kind of environment in which Jesus told this parable. He said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger son came to his father and said, Give me my portion of the inheritance. And his father divided up all of his possessions among his two sons. And it wasn't very long before the younger son gathered up all that he had, 
departed for a distant country, and there he squandered everything, all of his wealth, in wild living. And when he'd spent all that he had, a severe famine came across the entire land, and he was in big trouble. And so he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who put him to work in the fields feeding his pigs. And the younger son longed to fill his belly with the food that the pigs were eating, but nobody would give him anything. And when he had come to his senses, he said to himself, My father's hired servants have food to spare. And yet here I am, starving to death. I know, I'm going to go back to my father. And he prepared a speech. He said, I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. And when he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and had compassion for him and ran to meet him threw his arms around him, embraced him, and kissed him. And the younger son started his speech. He said, Father, I've, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And his father cut him off. And he said to, the, he said to, the, to his servants, he said, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. We are going to have a celebration. My son who was dead is now alive. The one who was lost has now been found. And so they began to have a celebration. It wasn't long after that that the older son came in from working in the fields and he heard all the singing and the dancing and he called one of the servants to him and asked, what is going on? And the servant said, your brother has come back and so your father has killed the fatted calf so that we can celebrate because he was lost and now he's found. And the older brother was very angry and refused to go into the celebration. The father came out to talk to him, and the older son said, How many years have I slaved for you? And I have never once disobeyed you. And yet you never gave me so much as a, as a small goat so that I could have a celebration with my friends. But when this son of yours comes home, who squandered all of your wealth with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. Now, there's a little bit more to that story, but I'm going to let you read it for, its, for yourself. But what's the one big idea in this parable? What's the one big idea? It's about forgiveness, isn't it? And we love this story. You know, one went out, doesn't deserve it, comes back, he's forgiven. We love the story. But in first century Palestine, that story would not have been nearly so popular. That a young man would disgrace and dishonor and shame his entire family and his family name and his father in that way was inexcusable. And then to think that when he came back home, his father would embrace him and accept him back unthinkable which actually just makes the story i think more poignant 
Now, nearly everyone can identify with someone in this story. Where do you see yourself in this story? Are you like the younger son who was selfish, disobedient, rebellious, and in desperate need of forgiveness? Or maybe you say, I'm like the father. I'm willing to forgive. But realize that that father had to go through a lot of pain and heartache and actually humiliation in order to be able to forgive. Or perhaps you identify most with the older brother. The one who said, that's not right. And was angry and bitter. See, there's a reason that each one of us can find someone in this story to identify with. And that's, it's the same reason that I know something about you. I know something about you. You've been wounded by someone in your life. Everyone has been wounded by someone in their life. I mean, it's just part of the human experience. And it doesn't take very long to think of someone who's hurt you. Someone who has betrayed you. Someone who has let you down. It could be a family member. It could be a friend. It could be a person at work. It could be a spouse. Maybe they promised you something, but they couldn't deliver or they didn't deliver. Or maybe they disappointed you. Or maybe they said something that was just not true. Maybe they did something that was just off the charts, horrific. Maybe even criminal. But something has happened that crippled your relationship, maybe even broke it, perhaps permanently. And every time you hear their name, it brings butterflies to your stomach, even if the offense happened years and years ago. When you think of them, your heart rate increases. You can feel your blood pressure rising when you think about what they said and what they did. It's as if you're living it all over again just thinking about it. But there's someone that has wounded you. And it may be years ago in the past, or it could be you're right in the middle of it right now. I mean, this could be as fresh as last month or last week or last night. But there's someone you know that's wounded you. In your worship bulletin this morning, I've given you a space to write down the initials of someone that God has brought to mind. It may be one person, two people, three people, maybe more than that. I'll give you just a second to write down the initials of those people that have come to mind. See, this message has been rattling around in my soul 
for about 18 months. Because as I read Scripture, I believe the single greatest inhibitor to a healthy, growing relationship with God is unforgiveness. John said it like this. Whoever claims to love God, it's actually Jesus saying it, John recorded. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For who does not love their brother and sister, for whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. The writer of Hebrews says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians, he said, Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Get rid of all hard feelings, anger, and rage. Stop all the fighting and lying. Don't have anything to do with any kind of hatred. Be kind and tender to one another. Forgive one another just as God forgave you because of what Christ has done. I'm going to ask you to read that last sentence with me. Let's read it together. Forgive one another just as God forgave you because of what Christ has done. Is your spiritual life stagnant? Does God seem distant? Do your prayers seem to stop at the ceiling or maybe they don't even get off the floor? Do you wonder why you don't see God's activity in your life? I suggest to you that one reason is because of bitterness and unforgiveness. Bitterness is subtle. It's sneaky. It it, it creeps into your spirit almost without you knowing it so gently and so innocently that you don't even realize it has a hold of you until it is too late. Unforgiveness has divided friendships, families, marriages, churches, and even nations. Unforgiveness has been called the cancer of the soul. And just like cancer, if unforgiveness goes unchecked, it will eat you alive. If you're not a Jesus follower this morning, and regardless of whether you choose to follow Jesus or not, Jesus' teachings about forgiveness and unforgiveness can change your life. But those who count themselves as Jesus followers ought to especially lean in this morning and hear what Jesus had to say about forgiveness. Matthew recorded an incident In Matthew 18, when Peter came to Jesus and asked a question that a lot of us ask, he said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And Jesus answered him with another parable. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a master who had many servants. 
And he decided that it was time for him to settle accounts with his servants. And so one was brought before him that owed him 10,000 bags of gold. And because the servant couldn't pay it, the master ordered that the servant and his wife and his family or his children and all of his possessions be sold in order to pay the debt. But the, but the servant fell to his knees and begged the master. He said, please be patient for me. I will pay you back everything that I owe. And the master had, had pity on him and forgave him the debt and let him go. And as the servant was going out, he came upon another servant who owed him a hundred pieces of silver. <clears throat> and he attacked him and choked him. And he said, repay me what you owe me. And the, and the second servant fell to his knees and begged him and said, please be patient for me. I, I will repay everything. But he refused. The first servant refused. And he had him thrown into jail until he could pay his debt. Now, when the other servants heard what had happened, of course, they were very angry, and they went to the master, and they told him everything that had happened, and he called the first servant back in. And he said, you wicked servant. I forgave you everything because you begged me to. Why don't you show the same mercy towards your fellow servant that I showed you? And so he took the, ser- the, fr- the servant and had him thrown into jail. And Jesus finished this parable by saying, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you if you don't forgive your brother and sister from your heart. Now, it doesn't take two years of seminary and a Bible commentary to figure out what the one big idea is in this parable, does it? The one who has been forgiven the most should be the most forgiven. Forgive one another just as God forgave you. Why don't we forgive? Well, there's lots of reasons, but I'm just going to touch on two or three. I think one of the reasons we don't forgive is because they are more wrong than I am, and they, I don't have to forgive them. You know, when I think about the scale of of wrongness, if there is such a scale, I think about how wrong I am. I may have some responsibility in this thing that has crippled the relationship, but I guarantee you their responsibility is greater than mine. I'll assign myself 20, maybe 30, 40% of the responsibility. Very rarely will I assign myself more than 49%, right? Because they are more wrong. And if they're more wrong, I don't have to forgive them. A second reason is that I believe that they're going to get what's coming to them. In India, there's a saying that says, karma has no menu. Karma has no menu. What that means is, you don't get to pick and choose what's going to happen to you. You're going to get what you deserve. So in India, they're not very good about forgiving because underlying this idiom is the idea that if I do forgive them, maybe they won't get what they deserve. And so I just, I just soon let things play out and let's see what happens. The third reason I think we don't forgive is we like the feeling. They owe us. They know they did wrong. I know they did wrong. 
and that's just the way I like it. See, it's not our nature to forgive, is it? We want to get even. We want revenge. We want to inflict pain on the person that did us wrong. We want that wrongdoer to suffer just as much as we did, just like we did, for as long as we did. But it's never enough, is it? That desire for revenge is a bottomless pit. That desire for revenge is insatiable. It will never be satisfied. When I'm unforgiving of another person, what I'm really saying is those things that I've done to offend God, now those things are forgivable because that's how good God is. But my standard for you is higher than God's standard. God can forgive you for that, but I can't. You may be in a good relationship. You can be right with the creator of the universe, the one that God spoke the world into existence, but not with me. God sent his son to die for that sin that you committed, but that's not good enough for me. It's been said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And if that's not reason enough to forgive, may I point out that forgiveness was the example of Jesus that set for all those who say they follow him. If we call ourselves Jesus followers, doesn't it stand to reason that we would imitate the one we claim to follow? So let's look at Jesus' example. Jesus, at the end of his life here on earth, was whipped and beaten to an inch, within an inch of his life. He was unrecognizable, but he was beaten and whipped by people to whom he had done nothing wrong. At his crucifixion, he was hung on a cross. And in our desire to provide modesty to the paintings, we put clothes on him. But the truth is that in first century Palestine, those who were crucified were crucified completely naked. Just to add to the humiliation and the insult and the mocking. And Jesus hung on a cross. His body and his soul laid bare, bearing the punishment of all sin for all time. And he said, Father, forgive them. That's incredible to me. I can't imagine. Scripture tells us that Jesus could have called 10,000 angels to rescue him, but he didn't. He chose to forgive. And see, forgiveness is a choice. It's not a spiritual gift. It's not an inherited trait. Forgiveness is a choice that we make. And we have to choose to forgive because we will rarely, if ever, feel like it. And it doesn't matter whether the person that we're talking about is, is 
deserves forgiveness or not. Our forgiveness isn't based on whether they deserve it or not. Just as God doesn't base your forgiveness on whether you deserve it or not. See, we expect the one who is most wrong, and that's very rarely us, we expect the one that's most wrong to initiate forgiveness. But if we're going to follow the example of Jesus, he was 0% wrong. And we are 100% wrong. And yet he chose to initiate forgiveness for us. See, forgiveness doesn't excuse what was done. Forgiveness doesn't say, oh, that's all right. Things happen for a reason. Forgiveness doesn't say, you know, all things work together for good. God causes all things to work together for good. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not about condoning. Forgiveness is not pardoning. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not reconciling. Can I tell you that reconciling and forgiveness are two different things? It takes two to reconcile. But it only takes one to forgive. And we get to choose our attitude. We get to choose whether we're going to forgive or not. Without considering, really, what their response is. We can't control or or influence the other person's response. But we can choose to forgive. Forgiveness says, what you did was wrong. And you hurt me. But I choose not to hold it against you. Forgiveness is the cancellation of debt. I give up my right to punish you. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean that you're not hurt. You can acknowledge the the, the pain that you've experienced without pretending that it doesn't matter. But you can still choose to forgive. Forgive one another just as God forgives you. And some might say, well, you know, you heard the saying, forgive and forget. Well, (laughs) you might be able to forget, but there's other things that you can't possibly forget. And you don't have to forget in order to forgive someone. Can I tell you, true forgiveness remembers everything and still chooses to forgive. But you don't know what they did to me. You might say, you don't know what happened to me. You don't know what they said to me. And you're right, I don't. And I am not trying to minimize or diminish the offense, and I'm not trying to minimize and diminish the pain that you feel because of that. But can I tell you something? Holding on to it's only going to make it worse. You're you're right. I don't know how you feel. But Jesus does. And I know what Jesus said about forgiveness. Matthew records something that we call the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus had this long, several-chapter sermon in which he said things like, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. And right at the beginning of this, Jesus says something so profound, so revolutionary, that we still have not put it into practice. In Matthew 5, 23 and 24, he says, Suppose you're offering your gift at the altar, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, and you leave your, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and make peace with them, then come back and offer your gift. Now, when you look at this, who's at fault in this situation? It doesn't say, does it? What's the point? Our relationships with each other are so important that God says it doesn't matter whose fault it is. Where was this person when they became aware, when they realized that they needed to mend a broken relationship? Where were they? At the altar, weren't they? See, it's in God's presence that I am made aware of problems and needs in my relationships. And when I give myself to his spirit, then he makes known to me what his will is for me and my actions and what my attitudes are. God really drove this home to me several years ago. Um, my, my wife had a friend who I would describe as high maintenance. And she would call seemingly every day and talk on the phone with my wife for a couple of hours seemingly every day. And Denise is very gracious, and she would never say anything. But as this went on day after day, it just kind of wore on me. I was saying, you're taking time away from my wife. You're taking time away from us together. And I developed this just, I don't know what to call it, this thing about her. And as I was studying this verse, God impressed on me. He said, you need to forgive her, or you need to ask for her forgiveness. And I answered in a very spiritual way, for what? You know, I said, listen, she calls, and this tell you how long ago it was, we had landlines before cell phones, and I used to answer the phone, and I, I mean, all I'm doing is I answer the phone, she's in there, and I like, hi, here's Denise. I mean, come on, she doesn't know anything. It's not, it didn't bother her. What do I need to ask for forgiveness about? And so I let it go. And then God reminded me. And I realized that he wasn't going to let it go. And so I decided, okay, I've got I've to call her and ask for forgiveness. And, and, then I and then I realized I didn't have her phone number. So, so I have to ask Denise for her friend's phone number. At which point Denise says, what for? You know, God has a way of humbling you, even in the most simple circumstances. So I had to tell Denise what I wanted to call her about. And so I call her. We play phone tag for a little bit. And ultimately, when I get her on the phone, I said, uh, the Lord has convicted me that I have not had a Christ-like attitude toward you. Will you forgive me for that? And I thought she would say, what are you talking about? Ah, oh, forget it. Come on, nothing. What you, I don't even know what you're talking about. But you know what she said? 
I knew you didn't like me. I'm like, how could you know? I say two words and I hand off the phone. How do you know? She goes, I knew you didn't like me. But yeah, I'll forgive you. And it would make a great story if I said we were great friends. Now we're not. But we do have a healthy relationship. And there's three things that I learned in that experience. The first is that when God tells me to do something, he's not going to forget or change his mind. I didn't wake up on Tuesday and God says, you know that thing I told you on Sunday? Never mind. I was just kidding. He wasn't going to let it go. And so now it became a thing between me and God. It became a, a, an issue of obedience between me and God. The second thing I learned is that there's a big difference between I apologize and will you forgive me? It's easy to say I apologize. It ain't so easy to say, will you forgive me? Because why? Because that transfers the power over to the other person. Now they have to deal with what this whole issue and decide, yes, I'm going to forgive you or no, I, no I'm not. And they may not. But I've done what I was commanded to do and say, will you forgive me? And given them the opportunity to forgive me for my part, for my role in this relationship. And the third thing I learned is that I couldn't be in good relationship with God if I was not in good relationship with people. Now, if, in, if, when you look at this verse, which does Jesus say is more important? Worshiping or, writing or, or correcting and writing a relationship? Which is more important, worship or the relationship? Jesus is saying that forgiving... And writing a relationship is more important than worshiping God. Why? It's because our relationship with others is so important that our relationship with God will never be right until our relationship with others is right. Here's a life principle for you. It is impossible to be right with God and wrong with man at the same time. We want to come in here on a Sunday morning and say everything is right between me and God when I know there are things and people that I'm not right with. Jesus is saying you can't be right with God and wrong with man at the same time. I'm going to close with a personal story. Eight years ago, uh, this month, I got one of those, one of those times in my life when, you know, you've been there when time just stands still. You get that call and weeks and months and even years later, you remember everything about your environment when you got that call. Maybe even what you were wearing or what you were doing or, or the coffee that was brewing or what the weather was like. You remember everything. It's as if time stands still. Eight years ago this month, that happened. My daughter, Kara, had just graduated from high school in the spring, and um, she, was, she was in college, and she called me to tell me that 
her best friend had been killed in a car accident. I'll let you, I'll let her tell you about that part of it. October 28, 2007 was the night that I'll never forget. I remember being in my freshman dorm room at OBU. I had just left for college a few months prior, um, and I had left my three best friends in high school, Ashley, Leslie, and Jessica. And I got the call that Ashley had been in a car accident and that um, she had been hit on the highway and that she was in ICU. I remember flying um, as fast as I could down the turnpike with friends in tow, and um, I remember getting to the hospital and... Um, on the way there, I had received news that um, Ashley had passed away, and uh, obviously they had done everything they could to save her, but there was nothing they could do. Um, she was brain dead on the scene, and um, so she, when I got to the hospital, my other two best friends were there, and um, I remember going into her room, and I remember um, seeing her bloody pillow um, and her lifeless body. And I had never felt such grief in all my life. Um, I remember they hustled us into this room, this side room, after everyone had gotten to see Ashley. And they closed the door. And I could heal, hear the wheels on her bed um, as they rolled my best friend's lifeless body past us. Um, Ashley and I had met in high school. We, um, I was new to the school. Um, in ninth grade, and we played basketball together. She's this five-foot Hawaiian, um, has the most feisty um, attitude. She's a friend to everyone. I remember uh, we laughed a lot. We played um, lots of games together, and uh, me and her and these two other girls were just the best of friends all through high school, and we never obviously imagined anything like this would happen. We, um, always talked about being friends past college and living together and living close to each other and um, what that could look like. And then um, just a few months in to my freshman year, um, all of that had changed. Hard for dad to watch. What she didn't tell you in that piece is that the accident was caused by a young man that was high on ecstasy. And as he tried to merge onto the highway, he misjudged the distance between his car and Ashley's car. And he clipped the back end of her car and sent her spinning across three lanes of traffic where she was broadsided by an SUV. He was arrested, convicted of driving under the influence and vehicular manslaughter. And 16 months after the accident, if, if you understand our judicial system, you know that they have the sentencing phase. It's the opportunity for the witness impact statements. And Kara wrote this in her journal after going to that sentencing hearing. She said, last Monday, I learned what true forgiveness is. Never have I seen it played out in front of me like that. 
As I sat in court looking at him for the first time, the guy who killed my best friend, I was overwhelmed with emotion. I find myself feeling so angry, thinking I've never hated any person more in my life. You ruined everything. You're the reason that all this happened. I can't believe I am even in the same room as you. I began to look at him. Really look at him. He, he looks like a guy I'd hang out with. He's my age. My age. He made a big mistake, a big one. Choosing to drive while under the influence. And his mistake ended a precious girl's life. Ashley's mom starts off by talking about that night. That terrible, terrible night about how she had to kiss her 18-year-old daughter goodbye. She tells about who Ashley was, about her love and her zest for life. And then she says what she wants for this young man. She starts off with, I don't want him to spend his life in jail. Wow. To look at the boy who killed your daughter, your only daughter, and be able to say that astonishes me. She says, I want you to finish your degree. I want you to have a family. For a mother to look at him and say those things is incredible. It's only by the grace of God that she could say and mean those things. She forgave him. And he didn't deserve any of it. What a beautiful picture of forgiveness. It reminds me of the Lord who continually forgives me. I often sin flippantly day in and day out, and yet he forgives me. And if the Lord can forgive me every day, if she can forgive him, surely I can forgive any wrongdoing against me. <clears throat> How insignificant those grudges I hold on to are. I witnessed this beautiful act of forgiveness, and it was life-changing. Not just for me, but for him. His 10-year sentence was reduced in large part because the district attorney said Ashley's family was forgiving and asked that his sentence be reduced. The truth is, no sentence brings Ashley back. I must forgive. Louis Smedes said it like this, Forgiveness is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner is you. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, said in the final analysis, forgiveness is an act of faith. By forgiving another, I'm trusting that God is a better justice maker than I am. By forgiving, I release my own right to get even and leave all issues of fairness for God to work out. I leave in God's hands the scales that must balance justice and mercy. Is there a relationship in your life that has died or is, or is dying because of unforgiveness? What is it that God's revealing to you? Is there someone you haven't talked to for a really long time because of what they said and what they did? Is there someone that you're waiting for them to come to you asking for forgiveness? 
Or is there someone that you need to go ask for forgiveness from? Forgive one another just as God forgave you. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. You know, if God is dealing with you today, don't let this moment pass. He's not going to forget what he told you to do. And some of you may need to get up right now and go make a phone call to that person. Maybe their initials you wrote down. Maybe it's someone that God has placed on your heart this morning. And you need to go call them now. Do it. It may be that there's someone that you need to ask for forgiveness from. And you're not sure how you're going to go about that. You don't know what you're going to say. You don't know how this is going to work. And you don't even know what the first step is. I'm going to have some prayer partners here along the landing, and I'm going to be up front. Listen, we would love to pray with you about that for boldness, for courage, for the ability to say the right thing. Make that first step of obedience of what God's calling you to do. Make that, that first step to be find somebody to pray with you. You know, it may be that the person, that the relationship that's broken, that person's gone. You can't call them. You can't talk to them. But you still need to take that step of forgiveness of forgiving them you can't be right with God and wrong with man at the same time so I'm going to urge you as we sing here to to get up and find one of these prayer partners and let them pray with you and for you you know and it might be that you say I can't forgive because I have never experienced unconditional forgiveness. Can I tell you something? Today's the day. You can experience unconditional forgiveness. Come to Jesus. I would love to talk with you and pray with you. Come to Jesus because He is the great forgiver.